Well, I know that many of you have been looking forward to hearing an exposition on this text. And so let me try and adjust your expectations a bit before we begin. I'm not going to work through every possible interpretation that is out there on this text since there are so many and it's hard to find even two commentators who agree on every detail of this passage. However, I have to confess that over the last few days I've been experiencing what Peter felt when he said there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. But I'm also glad that for my sake and yours, Peter didn't leave it at that. After urging his readers not to fall into error, he wrote, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so I'm confident in the Lord that you will find this passage to be both comforting and hopeful because it points us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. May it be profitable to our souls and equip us to live faithfully in a world that is perishing. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. Daniel 9, 20 to 27. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, we confess that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would show us his glory so that we might gain insight and understanding. Instruct your people so that we might abound in hope. May we know Christ, that we might be transformed by his spirit to walk in faith and love. In his name we pray. Amen. The story is told of an old man who was once asked, what is your favorite Bible verse? As this man struggled to remember, he thought of a portion of a verse that he had read somewhere in the Old Testament, a portion that followed some promise. And so he replied, uh, uh, it's the one that says, and it came to pass meaning that God's promise came to be fulfilled. The truth that God was faithful to his promises gave this old man hope in the midst of his troubles. Friends, this is what biblical hope is meant for. It is meant to be an anchor for your soul as you look to the future. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking, but it's a future-looking faith. So one theologian writes, it's simply impossible to trust one of God's promises and not anticipate its coming true. To know God is to trust Him. And to trust God is to trust His promises. And to trust God's promises is to be sure of their fulfillment. This assurance concerning the future anchored in God's promises is what the Bible calls hope. Now in this passage, in Daniel 9, 20 to 27, this was revealed to Daniel to give him and the Israelite exiles hope. Daniel's 70 weeks is packed with good news. So often we forget that in our desire to understand what the numbers are all about in this passage. Now it's very important to remember that verses 20 to 27 of Daniel 9 is God's response to Daniel's prayer, which we considered last week from verses 1 to 19. In fact, it is the interpretive key to understanding this passage. This is God's answer. God, Daniel prayed to the Lord and, and sought him, if you remember, uh, with pleas for mercy. Daniel did this immediately after meditating on the prophecies of Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord prompted his prayer. And this is what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 29 Verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back. I'll restore you to this place for I know the plans I have for you. 
When he says, I know, it doesn't mean, I know, but, yeah, you know, is it going to happen? I don't know. No, God's knowledge means he will make that happen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now when you read a couple of verses further in Jeremiah 30 verse 18, this restoration includes not just bringing people back to the land, but also building the city. Now if you remember, Daniel had been in Babylon since 605 B.C., he was part of that first wave of captives that were taken into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And just as God had shown him in chapters 2 and chapter 7, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians in 539-538 BC. This means that Daniel has been in exile for about 66-67 years. That means the exile is nearly over. But how is the exile going to be brought to an end? How will the word that went forth from Jeremiah's mouth be fulfilled? Now to understand this, three passages of scripture are crucial. Three passages. The first is Isaiah 44 verse 8. In this verse, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, who prophesied hundreds of years before the exile, tells us about the human agent who will bring about this restore, who would bring about the Lord's restorative purposes. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Cyrus is going to take care of the city and the temple. The second passage also concerns Cyrus. Isaiah 45, verse 1 and 13. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, that word anointed in Hebrew means Messiah, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. And verse 13 says, He, that is Cyrus, shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah prophesied that this word of the Lord that was spoken through Jeremiah to restore and build Jerusalem would be fulfilled through an anointed one, namely the Persian king Cyrus. But that's not something we need to guess. A third passage brings it all together. Look at 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 to 23. 2 Chronicles 36, 20 to 23. He, that is Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Notice how the 70 years are calculated from the time Nebuchadnezzar started carrying away people into exile till the beginning of the Persian kingdom. That's how those 70 years are calculated. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, so we're still in Chronicles, I'm reading verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, King of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. Now, historically, we know that the repatriation of the people happened in stages, in waves. It took time. You know, people didn't magically teleport back to the land. Remember, they've been living in, Jer in Babylon for 70 years, building houses, establishing families. And so it took time. It happened in stages. First, P 
people returned to build the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. And then later the city was rebuilt under Nehemiah's leadership. Now when Daniel reads Jeremiah, he's reminded of something very dark. He's reminded of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness and idolatry. Remember the exile was the climax of the outworking of God's covenant curses on his people. And so Daniel confesses his sins and the sins of his people. He appeals to God's covenant and his great mercy and forgiveness. And he prays that the Lord who brought them out of, this, out of slavery in Egypt would once again, for the sake of his own glory, restore his people and his temple and his holy city. Now this morning, we'll consider how God answers Daniel's prayer by giving him understanding about his plans for his people and giving him a great hope. And the first thing I want you to note about God's answer to Daniel's prayer, after his prayer of confession of, of sin and pleas for mercy, you know, this old man who has been faithful in little and in much, this is what I want you to note. Number one, God responds in love. That's our first point this morning. God responds in love. Look at verses 20 to 21. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem, the city on a hill, Mount Zion, which was now desolate. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. So this is the angel Gabriel who appears to Daniel as a man. We saw that in chapter 8, verses 15 to 16. Gabriel, he says, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now remember at this point, there's no temple. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it all. There were no sacrifices being made. But notice how Daniel counts time. He doesn't say Gabriel came to me at 4.30 p.m., or he came to me at sunset, but at the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember what Daniel has been praying for. He wants true worship to be restored at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, according to the law of Moses, the morning and evening sacrifices were to be offered daily by the priests for the people so that the Lord could dwell in the midst of his people. And Daniel yearns for that. He longs for that. This is why he keeps time in this way. Now, at some level, uh, we can understand that, can't we? Even in our day. Very often uh, when we think of some precious moment, uh, we recall it based on how we felt at that time. So for example, you might say, oh, do you remember that time when we went to that uh, restaurant and you were wearing that ridiculous looking sweater and the waiter sneezed on your plate? Yuck. I'm never going back to that place again. No one ever says, do you remember what happened on February 4th, 2012, 3.49 p.m. when the humidity was 50%? No one remembers stuff like that. You know, I'm always pleasantly surprised when, whenever I ask one of our members, hey, when did you join Grace Church? You know, very few people will remember the month and the year. Instead, most people say, oh, I came when you were preaching through John. Or when you were preaching through Genesis. Or Galatians. See, Daniel's heart longs for worship and fellowship that were enabled by these God-ordained sacrifices in God's temple. And we're told that Gabriel comes in swift flight. Now, some translations will add the reason why Gabriel comes swiftly. Because of Daniel's weariness. And this is not hard to understand since Daniel has been fasting and praying. And just as Gabriel strengthened him in the previous vision and gave him understanding, Gabriel, Gabriel now arrives to help Daniel understand God's response to his prayer. Look at verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So Daniel is given understanding through Gabriel's speaking and saying, through his words. Friends, the ability to understand God's word, and in this case, the vision, that's God sent. It's a divine gift. Understanding is a merciful gift that God imparts 
to his servants. Don't take that for granted. See, Daniel needs it in order to understand God's word that he sends through Gabriel. He needs to understand what the 70 weeks are all about. And here's what's astonishing about this response. Look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Underline that. A word went out. What does that tell you? The moment Daniel started praying, he was heard. He was heard. While he was still praying, God responded to his pleas. A word went out. Beloved, this ought to be our confidence when we pray biblical prayers. That our Heavenly Father hears us. We can have this assurance when we pray scriptural prayers, when we ask according to his will, according to what he has promised to do for your spiritual growth and mine. And so when you pray, oh Lord, help me to be patient with this child that you have given me. Enable me to submit to my husband because of my trust in you. When you say, Lord, enable me by the power of your spirit to put 10 filters between my brain and my mouth so that what I say and how I say it will bear testimony that I love this person and desire to build this person up instead of spouting foolish, crude, and worldly banter. When you ask according to his will, the Father hears us. And he delights to answer those prayers powerfully. God will answer those prayers. 1 John 5, 14-15 says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Isn't that amazing? That's a promise. But why does God do that? Well, Gabriel says God sent forth his word of response and I have come to tell it to you for, here's the reason, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. This phrase greatly loved is one word in Hebrew which means a precious thing, a treasure. Beloved, you are his treasured possession. And he loves you. His love for us is not like our love for him. Nor can it be compared to any other kind of love. Friends, if the omnipotent, eternal and sovereign king of the universe has set his affection on you, what makes you think that anything in all creation can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord? What makes you think that when you ask according to his will, his omnipotent will that he will not answer or that he lacks the ability to answer. Oh, beloved, pray in faith. Pray in faith. Pray bold prayers for unbelievers. Pray bold prayers for weak sheep. Pray bold prayers for the increasing Christ-likeness of your brothers and sisters. Pray because you are greatly loved in Christ. Now, God doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He loves you. You know, as you look at this verse, how does God express his love towards Daniel? Look at the text. By sending his word. By sending his word. This vision of the 70 weeks that Gabriel is sent to tell Daniel. God says to Daniel, oh Daniel, you're confessing your sins and interceding for the sins of Israel. You're appealing to my mercy, my glory, my redemptive purposes for the restoration of the people and the temple and the city. I love you. So here it is. My word. This is what I need you to understand. This is what I want you to know. And Gabriel says, therefore. Notice the flow of the argument there. You are greatly loved. So here's my word, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Friends, the right response to God's love for us, as demonstrated in his word, is for us to do what? To consider his word and understand it. To work hard at it, to meditate on it, to trust in it, to do what it says. You know, as Christians, there are many things that we are called to do. Good works, 
Acts of faith, working through love, many commands that we are called to obey. But the foundational act that leads to all the others is to consider what he says in his word. To study it, to wrestle with it, to understand it, to not leave difficult passages like Daniel 9, 20 to 27 to the experts. When God has given it to his beloved saints as an expression of his love for you. He loves you, so pray for understanding and insight and consider his word, not casually, but seriously. You know, there's a direct correlation between your spiritual maturity and how much time you spend loving God by loving his word. But here's another thing you must note in this text. Don't you find it odd that he says, consider the word and understand the vision? You would expect him to say, consider the word and understand the word. But he says, consider the word and understand the vision. What does that tell you? The vision is the word. The vision is the word. See, unlike the previous apocalyptic visions where Daniel sees, here Gabriel narrates the vision. He tells him what he's seeing. Which brings us to our second point. God responds with encouraging words of hope. God responds in love. God responds with encouraging words of hope. Here's what he says. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed, meaning they're determined or ordained by God, about your people and your holy city. This is what Daniel was praying about. Jeremiah's 70 years are almost up. On the basis of your mercy alone, O Lord, restore your people according to your covenant promises. So God answers him and says, Daniel... My redemptive plan for restoration goes beyond 70 years of exile. It's going to take 70 weeks. Now the word that is translated as weeks is the word, is the Hebrew word, which means a period of sevens, which is why some translations will say 70 sevens. Now the question is, what do the sevens or the weeks mean? Should we take the word week to, make, to mean a literal seven days, which would then make 70 weeks, roughly about one and a half years? This seems unlikely because of what is said next. 70 weeks are ordained to accomplish many things, one of which will involve bringing in everlasting righteousness. So this looks forward to the coming kingdom of God, which Daniel saw in his previous visions, one that will be established by the conquering son of man. His kingdom, says Daniel, shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This looks forward to the coming kingdom of God in glory when Christ will return and usher in the new earth. The government will be on his shoulders. There will be everlasting righteousness. So it can't mean literal weeks. Now, there are others who would take the weeks to mean years. And so they would interpret the 70 weeks to mean 70 weeks of years. So 70 into 7, that's 490 literal years. And then they work very hard to try and calculate these years from Daniel's time to the coming of Jesus and to the end of the age. But friends, remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And in this kind of literature, numbers are used symbolically. Why, even in other kinds of literature, we must be careful how we read numbers. So take the Gospels, for example. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 18, when Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Jesus answers him, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on to tell him the parable of the unforgiving servant. Y you get the point. Anyone who has experienced the forgiving grace of God cannot and should not be stingy in forgiving others. No one reads that and starts to keep score, right? Uh, 70 times, oh, that's 490. I'll forgive my brother. Okay, 488, 489, 490. Okay, but your quota is over. Now I'm going to punch you in the face. No, no one reads it like that. If we don't read 77s in Matthew literally, shouldn't we be all the more careful? Not to read it literally when we're reading apocalyptic literature full of symbolism and imagery. You see, seven, as we've already learned, is the number of completeness and abundance. 
And 10 is the number of fullness or comprehensiveness. So 7 into 10, 70 is a complete full period of time. 70 weeks, that is 7 into 10 into 7 is superlative. It's a way of describing from heaven's perspective. Remember, that's one of the features of these visions to show us things from God's perspective. This is a way of describing a complete, full, why even perfect period of time that God has ordained to accomplish all his redemptive purposes. It is a period of time that covers all of history from Daniel's time till that time when according to Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. But there's more that ought to inform our reading of this text. And to understand what this means, we must go back to a verse that we have already looked at, and that is 2 Chronicles 36.21. 2 Chronicles 36, 21. Now, when the people were in exile in Babylon, the chronicler tells us that all the days that the land lay desolate, it kept what? Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, this goes back to the law in Leviticus 25, 8 to 17. Leviticus 25, 8 to 17. Moses instructed the people that when they would be in the promised land, they would work their land for six years, plow their fields, sow their seed, prune their vineyards, harvest their crops, do that for six years, and then allow the land to rest for the seventh. This was a sabbatical for the land. And in that year, the sabbatical year, the people were to trust the Lord for their provision. And the Lord himself would provide everything his people needed from the yield of the land itself. Now after seven weeks of years, so seven times seven, that's 49 years, the people were to declare a jubilee year. So the 50th year was the year of jubilee. When the trumpet would sound on the day of atonement, slaves would be set free, debts would be forgiven, property would be returned and the people of the land would enter into a time people and the land would enter into a time of rest and so the year of jubilee marked a time of redemption release restoration and rest and so the 77s of daniel are emblematic of 10 jubilees intensifying the idea of jubilee to a climactic or ultimate jubilee so these 70 weeks are not supposed to make you pull out your calculator and your calendar, but it should make you think theologically. But what does God want to accomplish in this ultimate jubilee, in these 70 weeks or 77s? Look at the text. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To do what? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Notice that there are six things that God will accomplish as an answer to Daniel's prayer for the restoration of his people, temple, and city. Let's consider these one by one. Number one, to finish the transgression means to bring all moral rebellion to its close. Number two, to put an end to sin means something similar. Literally, it means to seal up sin in a bag, to, to stop its virulence, to destroy its power. Number three, to atone for iniquity. To atone for iniquity in Old Testament language is to cover over sins, to make propitiation for sins with blood so that sinners can be reconciled with God. Remember how in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant? These first three goals deal with sin in its totality. Beloved, this is good news. This is good news for someone like Daniel who has been confessing his sins and the sins of Israel. Can you imagine what a comfort it would have been to hear that God saying, I am going to take care of the sin problem. This is my promise. These three phrases concerning sin ought to remind us of Exodus 34, 6-7. 
that great revelation of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, listen carefully, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Same terms that, that, that is told to Daniel. God is saying to Daniel, I have decreed 70 weeks to deal with sin, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. You see, when you read the prophet Isaiah, especially chapters 42 all the way to chapter 55, Isaiah says that the return from exile is going to involve two stages. Two stages. First, the people will return from Babylon to their land and then the second stage is going to involve a restoration of their relationship to God. So first there, there would be a physical return and then there would be a spiritual restoration from their spiritual exile. So God would deal with their sin and he himself would atone for their sins through his Messiah. We know who that Messiah is, don't we? In Isaiah 53, it's that suffering servant who would be pierced for the transgressions of his people, who would be crushed for their iniquities, who would bear the sin of many, who would make an offering for guilt, who would be cut off from the land of the living for the sins of his people and would live to see many to be accounted righteous. You see, this is how the Son of Man, who we saw in Daniel 7, is going to conquer. This is how he will conquer and be given an everlasting kingdom and all peoples will worship him. Beloved, do you see how this is such a Messiah-centered or Christ-centered passage filled with hope? And this leads us to the next three goals. Number four, to bring in an everlasting righteousness. This will happen only after the Messiah, that stone that Daniel saw in chapter 2, will destroy all the kingdoms of the world, a time beyond the fourth kingdom. A time when he will usher in his perfect kingdom and give it to the saints. The fifth point, to seal both vision and profit. This means to bring those things, both those things, to an end, to a fulfillment. Now we who stand on this side of the cross can attest to this because of the scriptures. Hebrews 1, 1-2 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, even in visions, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in, this, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, the son is the final word. He is the fullness of God's revelation. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Point number six, and to anoint a most holy place. The text literally reads, anoint a holy of holies. Now this, of course, ought to remind us of the most holy place in the temple and the tabernacle where the glory of the Lord dwelt. Because of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. And after Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and the second temple was rebuilt in Ezra's time, we are told that many old people who saw that temple, they wept because they knew that the glory of the Lord had departed. This second temple was again violated and desecrated by Antiochus. Again, this was a result of Israel's unfaithfulness. But it's only when we get to John 1.14 that we hear these stunning words. And the word became flesh and dwelt or templed among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. The glory of the Lord had returned. But in a temple, unlike anything or anyone had seen before. See, God's true temple had come in the person of his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the anointed one who would save his people from their sins. You see, his death and resurrection was the new exodus, the deliverance that frees us from our sins. He is the Christ, the anointed one who lives a life of perfect obedience and dies in the place of sinners to atone for our sins and reconcile us to God. All these things God said he would accomplish in 70 weeks and all of these things he fulfills in Christ Jesus, his Messiah. But Daniel doesn't have timelines. 
Remember that. Nor does he know how all of this is going to play out. God has just revealed to him that the restoration of all things was going to take more than just 70 years and a physical return. And yet these are hope-filled words for the future. It is a far better hope than what Daniel thought of. See, God knows the plans he has for his people, doesn't he? Friends, this is the God you can trust on when your schedule goes haywire. Don't trust in your abilities to fix it. Look to him. He is the Lord of history. Look at his great redemption plan. Trust in him. So how do these 70 weeks play out? Well, God explains it to Daniel by dividing those 70 weeks into three periods of time. So there's a short period of time, there's an extended period of time, and then there's a climactic period of time. Three periods of time. Remember, look at these periods schematically. Remember, these 70 weeks are pointing forward to an ultimate jubilee in Christ. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Notice the phrase, going out of the word. Notice how similar it is to the phrase in verse 22. A word went out. Consider the word. This is not an earthly decree. It's a prophetic word. Remember what Daniel was doing. He was reading Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. His prophetic word concerning the restoration and the building of Jerusalem. So the first seven weeks is the period of time from Jeremiah's word of prophecy to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. This anointed one or prince refers to King Cyrus, who Isaiah refers to as God's anointed. Jeremiah's word was fulfilled how? Through King Cyrus, who issued a royal decree allowing the exiles to return to the land and rebuild the temple and the city. So that's the first period. Friends, this ought to encourage us to continue praying for rulers and government officials as 1 Timothy 2.2 commands us to. Think about it. Who knows how the Lord will use our prayers to accomplish his good purposes? Look at the text. Then for 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, so here's the second division or second period of time. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. Meaning the city of Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonians will be built again. With squares and moat. This refers to the city's public squares and its trenches or water canal systems. All of this happens in that 62 week period. It will be rebuilt but in a troubled time. Now we know why he calls this a troubling time. Once the exiles return in waves, they face local opposition. Both Ezra and Nehemiah do. They also have to deal with the sins of the people. After the city and the walls are rebuilt, the Greeks come to power. Antiochus later invades Jerusalem, desecrates the temple. This leads to the Maccabean revolt and the temple is rededicated. And after that, Rome comes to power. It's a troubling time, this extended period of time. Israel remains under foreign rule for a long and troubled time. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, so the seven weeks have gone by, a short period of time, 62 weeks have gone by, an extended period of time, so a total of 69 weeks have gone by, and now we find ourselves in that final seven, the 70th week. What happens in the final week? An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now where have we heard that language before? In Isaiah. This refers to Jesus and his atoning work, the anointed one, the Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing. He will be abandoned by his friends and left to die alone. Now some translations will say he will be cut off but not for himself. Now I admit that that, that is a phrase that's hard to translate, but we certainly understand that too, don't we? He was cut off but not for himself. It was for our sins. Friends, in the fullness of time, that climactic 70th week, God demonstrated his love by sending his son. The word became flesh. The sinless son of God took on flesh and died on the cross. He was cut off. You know, that's a covenantal term used to describe the death penalty meant for covenant breakers under the old covenant. Whoever breaks God's law shall be 
cut off from his people. This tells you that Christ died as a substitute, bearing the iniquity of his people. He did this for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him as Lord and Savior. In the 70th week, you find a description of salvation. But there's also, look at the text, there's also a description of judgment. Here's what the text says. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. This refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Romans in 70 AD. The prince refers to the one who led the siege, Titus Vespasianus. Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed as an act of God's judgment on his people. You find that in Luke 19, 44. Its end, this destruction of the city and the temple, its end shall come with a flood. Again, remember, this is apocalyptic imagery. The flood is meant to remind us of the floodwaters of God's judgment during Noah's time. It will be sudden and severe. The flood language points to the magnitude of the destruction. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. You know, that phrase again, desolations are decreed. That comes straight out of Isaiah 10.22. Jerusalem will be surrounded by Roman armies and Daniel is told that God has decreed this. We read Jesus predicting this very thing in Luke 21, 20 to 22. Listen to his words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, after reading this, you might ask, how is this supposed to be good news and hope-filled words of encouragement for Daniel to know that the temple gets destroyed again? See, what God is doing is he's reshaping Daniel's hope messianically. Or we might say he's reshaping Daniel's hope Christologically. See, what Daniel needs to know and what we need to understand is that true restoration is found not by building a physical temple in an earthly Jerusalem, but it's found in the Messiah. Look at verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now what's all this about? Now bear in mind, we are looking at the events in the final week, the 70th week. Verse 27 is describing that same week, the final seven, and it's dividing it into two halves, three and a half, three and a half. In other words, this is simply another camera angle of the 70th week. Verse 26 and 27 are talking about the same things. So look at verse 26. In verse 26, you see the saving benefits of Christ, his being cut off for our sins, and then judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 27, you get to see the same thing. You get to see the saving benefits of Christ, making a strong covenant with many, ending the sacrificial system, and then the judgment, the decreed end being poured out on the desolator. You know, one Old Testament scholar puts it like this. It's like listening to music from stereo speakers sequentially instead of simultaneously. First comes the music of the right speaker, and then comes the music of the left speaker. Then the person hearing puts the two together in a three-dimensional stereo hole. This fits the normal patterns in Hebrew literature to deal with the topic recursively. Look at verse 27. This is why... The he in verse 27 is not the prince who is to come, but the anointed one who is cut off, namely Jesus. The strong covenant with many is the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his death and resurrection. Friends, this is the highlight of the 70th week, the climactic period. The text says he makes this for one week. That tells you something about this week that we saw earlier. It leads to the ultimate jubilee. So this is not a limited or temporary covenant, but an everlasting covenant. Isn't this what God promised Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Beloved, this is what Jesus spoke about when he ate bread and drank wine with his disciples before his death. He said, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. Now the text says, look at the text again. Now the text says that for half of the week, meaning in the first half of that climactic period, the 70th week, he will put an end. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. This is what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus did what the priests under the old covenant could not do. He entered once for all into the Holy of Holies by the sacrifice of himself, a better sacrifice to secure an eternal redemption by his blood. He is the mediator of the new covenant. When Jesus died, the gospel writers tell us that the veil in the temple separating the two sections was torn from top to bottom by a divine hand. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And by his once-for-all sacrifice, he secured the forgiveness of sins for his people. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hebrews 10, 18. He put an end to sacrifice and offering. Friends, he is the fulfillment of the temple and its sacrifices. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Now the second half of verse 27 tells us more of the judgment that happened in 70 AD. And on the wing of abominations, meaning in the train of all the horrific things that were happening, once the Roman army surrounded the city and barricaded people in, they began to die of starvation. Mothers literally ate their own children. And on its heels shall come one who makes desolate. This refers to the general Titus. The Jewish historian Josephus records how during the Roman siege, Titus brought soldiers into the temple, set up emblems of Caesar and the empire, and then offered sacrifices to them, much like Antiochus did before him. But all of this continues until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. See, God's judgment fell upon Titus and he died mysteriously of a fever, just like Alexander did. Now, historically, all of this happened when the fourth kingdom was in power. Now, friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to all of this, I want to draw your attention to the trustworthiness of God's word this morning. Everything that God said came true. He accomplished it. He said he would return the exiles to the land. He did that. He said that the temple and the city would be rebuilt in a troubled time and he kept his promise. He is the sovereign Lord of history and he has made a way, a trustworthy way for sinners to be reconciled to him. Friend, the God who offers salvation in Jesus Christ is a holy God. If you harden your heart against his word, you will be condemned on the day of judgment. So trust in his saving word. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. And you will be forgiven of all your sins. Today you can leave here rejoicing in that great hope that Daniel had. Today you can know God's great love if you turn to Christ. Now while this passage addresses what will happen in 70 AD, which for Daniel was way into the future... I think for us there's more to look forward to and words of hope for us as well. Remember that one of the goals of God's restoration uh, was to bring in a kingdom of, of everlasting righteousness. 
And while we have entered into the age to come in our new births, there is still coming a day when Christ will return and he will put an end to that final desolator of God's living temple, the church. There's still a time in the future when Christ will return and usher in a new heavens and a new earth and banish the very presence of sin. Beloved, we who are now united to Christ by faith are God's living temple. We have been anointed by the Spirit. God's plan at the end of 70 weeks is not to build an earthly temple or an earthly New Jerusalem. Because of what Christ has accomplished, John tells us in Revelation 21 that the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, will come down to the new earth. But the new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb. The city is actually a people. John even describes the dimensions. He says it's like, the, it's like a cube. The length and the height and the width are all the same. Revelation 21 verse 16. And the only other place that has those dimensions in the Old Testament is the most holy place. You see, people, place, and city all come together in Jesus Christ, our jubilee. John says in Revelation 21 verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Friends, Daniel's 70 weeks is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Him have entered into God's ultimate jubilee. Remember that passage that Jesus read when He entered the, the synagogue in Luke chapter 4? You know, he's in Nazareth. He decides to go into the synagogue. And then he gets up, opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's that? Jubilee. Jubilee. Friends, we have been redeemed, forgiven, restored. We have entered into our rest by faith. And we're living in, that, in the second half of the 70th week. And one day we will enter into our final rest, the fullness of our jubilee. Everything God said he would do, he has done in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we can stand on his promises. We can entrust ourselves to him both in times of peace and in times of trouble. He is the source of our strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You know, one of the most simple yet profound meditations on God's design for the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament comes from the pen of a songwriter named Michael Card. The song is called Jubilee, and he writes, The word provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts to all be canceled so his chosen ones could see. His deep desire was forgiveness. He longed to see their liberty, and his yearning was embodied in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee. Jesus is that Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves set free. Jesus is our jubilee. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for opening our eyes to see Christ, for giving us new hearts that can trust in him. Through him, we have also obtained an access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Father, would you now help us to rejoice in hope, to be patient in troubling times, and to be constant in prayer. Help us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in Christ, none of our labors will be in vain. In Christ's name we pray.